Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog training professionals and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning, exploring, and questioning each other's ideas as well as our own so we can become better at what we do. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Hey everyone, this is a canine classroom and we're just wild tonight. Uh, I'm here with Anthony and we got Brian and I see you're the barkologist. I love that. I love that. Uh, you could at least, you, right know, you know, tell, tell everyone his full name. Brian Fleming. Well, Come I on. mean, he's <laughs> Brian. Brian who? Like Brian they don't see. No the barkologist sees. Fleming. Listen, <laughs> you're an idiot. There's no a title. They clicked on the title when they opened up their podcast app and they saw that it said Brian Fleming, right? We're going to put that in there. You know, wait, I want to mm-hmm. interrupt. This right was now. fine. So, Brian, the last time <laughs> I'm going to interrupt, the last time Vinny and I record, I just wanted to start middle conversation, like how Joe Rogan does. I, I called it Rogan style. I, said, I just want to start right there in the middle. He's like, no, we got to be the same every time. So, you got to have a nice intros, intro. Intro yep. or no intro. So, fine. Now we do intros, but now you're sitting here, you're screwing the whole thing up. I'm trying to modify my behavior to what I thought you wanted of me. See, I'm confused. You have to be a little bit more clear with what you want. Yeah. What do you want from your learner, We're here with the barkologist. We're going to talk tonight about chaos so we can figure this shit out. Me and Vinny over here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, I'm I'm Brian Fleming. Uh, That's my full name. Brian Taylor Fleming. Um. I am known locally as the Barkyologist. Uh, I'm a huge fan of puns. So I saw a joke. It was like, what do you call a dog that loves digging up bones? Barkyologist. And I was like, that is brilliant. <laughs> so I went with Brian, the Barkyologist is kind of like my uh, my business name. Um, but I, uh, I'm a behavior consultant here in Mystic, Connecticut. And I focus on aggression and anxiety and complex cases. I also uh, blog and lecture on chaos theory and animal behavior. Well, we we were actually both chatting a little bit before about the blog because we've paid attention to it. Um, So, what do you think? uh, So, yeah, we have a bunch of we'll have a bunch of questions, I'm sure. But oh yeah, yeah, we wanted to start with the let's just start with chaos theory a little bit because I know it's a theory that doesn't originate in dog training, right? Correct. It um, it's kind of had an interesting history. Uh, chaos theory is from uh, mathematics, um, and it kind of came about from uh, this guy named uh, Lorenz. He was a meteorologist, and he was running some weather simulations, and he found a pretty interesting result. Um, this was back when computers were very basic, and he wanted to repeat the same result. So when he took his printout, he uh, re-entered all the numbers that he had used originally. But the printout um, rounds to a certain decimal point, um, which was less than the computer can take. So he figured, okay, you know, like I'm only off by like 0.000001. You know, that's not going to change much. Guess what? It changed everything. 
um, the entire weather system was entirely different. And he was like, what? This is crazy. Um, so he started investigating this um, area and what it came to be known as was uh, sensitive dependence on initial conditions or uh, deterministic chaos. What that pretty much means is, uh, as many people know, the butterfly effect. So a very small change in initial conditions can produce a massive uh, outcome um, that would be fairly unpredictable. The, uh, the notion is the butterfly flaps its wings, you know, somewhere in the world and across the world you get a tornado because you've gone in and changed the, uh, the math of the weather by an infinitesimally small amount uh, that would eventually kind of uh, ripple outward in effect. And I kind of apply this to dog training in the sense that the little things matter, the, the tiniest little details in, a, yeah. in dog training and behavior matters. Um, and that a, a small error or a small sort of behavior or event um, should not be overlooked because it was small. I love that. You just it's talk funny. about something for a second. Oh, no. Here we go. You got to make say with so the butterfly funny. effect, I bet. It's so funny because... Oh, yeah. No, no. It's so funny because he's. we're talking about like, you know, like there was this one little thing that changed in the computer. I don't know about you guys, but I remember the computer as a kid as just being for Oregon Trail. That was literally all <laughs> I thought it was for. So it just, it makes me like every time I hear like stories like this, where like, oh, it's just like off by one decimal. I'm thinking to myself, I remember in elementary school, the only thing I knew of the computer for was freaking Oregon Trail. That was literally what we did in computer class. You obviously never yeah, found Microsoft Paint. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, died of dysentery. <laughs> no, but that makes it, but going back to what you're saying though, it makes, uh, you're, you make a good point because like Vinny and I both enjoy actually like actually training and so like those little details of things can matter so much like the the placement of something or oh you stepped this way and it affected the dog's behavior you know so um it that's i, I like the way you describe that because that really like simplifies it because like i think sometimes we all like kind of miss whether it's our own dogs or a client we all kind of miss oh that one little detail that was actually causing some a problem the whole time and we're you know what i'm saying yeah absolutely um the the problem though is that there's so many infinite tiny little details to mm -hmm. pay attention to mm -hmm. um so we kind of have to ride this fine line between uh the mental resources that it takes to be paying attention to all these things Yep. Um, as well as conserving our own energy and mental resources. Because if you were to pay attention to every little thing, you know, you'd probably go crazy. Uh, yeah. But if you were to pay attention to none of the little things, you wouldn't be very effective. Um, and that's where kind of like uh, the art and nuance of training, I think, comes in uh, kind of riding that fine line. Mm -hmm. So do you think there is a way, and it's funny, I was doing some Googling on uh, chaos theory, and I've always heard the term controlled chaos and then when you look into that there's a bunch of people arguing about well if it's controlled it's not chaos and chaos doesn't have any control so what is what does that term kind of make you feel when you when, like can you control the yeah. chaos do you have to be super controlling is control the opposite of chaos maybe you want to discuss that 
Yeah, um, it's it's kind of like a more of a spectrum than a, a binary conclusion there, like order or chaos. There's sort of mm -hmm. like this gradual um, progression between the two. Um, and that comes from this concept called the uh, the edge of chaos. So if you have a uh, if you have a system uh, that is too ordered um, and too rigid, then it can't adapt um, and it gets stuck uh, and it can't um, evolve. So what winds up happening is that a, a system that's too rigid winds up fighting for chaos. Um, think about uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. That's a good example of a really rigid, ordered controlled system that needed more disorder and it just kind of uh, fell apart um, and then on the opposite side of the spectrum you have chaos so um, too much chaos and it's disorganized there's no form um, the the system uh, cannot self-organize or adapt in that sense um, that's kind of like and it the system will fight for order so think of like uh, the wild west we're like no laws, no nothing. We needed a little bit of order there. So systems tend to kind of oscillate between uh, the edge of chaos. So between order and disorder. Um, and various systems are going to kind of find themselves uh, preferring different areas of that spectrum. Um, and the way I kind of look at that with dogs is you might see like a um, like a herding dog or a very... Uh, a very kind of ordered, structured kind of dog, like maybe a, a Belgian Malinois or a Border Collie, um, a dog that craves order, per se. Um, and they might want to kind of be more towards that end of the spectrum. Um, but the the same amount of order might be uh, not good for perhaps a, uh, a former street dog who is more used to kind of like disorder and chaos. So kind of like finding where... Uh, the dog wants to be in terms of how much disorder or order there is in their life, uh, as well as what works for the human involved as well is important. So is, if I'm understanding you correctly, is this why we might set up training in a way that is so rigid or patterned or, you know, one plus two plus three equals four, and then we go out for a walk or a hike and all the shit we worked on in the basement just like goes out the window. Yeah, um, that is where uh, nonlinearity kind of comes in. Um, oftentimes we kind of have this uh, like idea of what uh, the world is supposed to look like or what training is supposed to look like. Um, and in almost this elementary fashion, we kind of set up these linear goals and linear assumptions of, of how it's all going to look. Um, but then all of a sudden, you know, something throws its hat in the ring that nobody could have predicted. Um, and sometimes things can fall apart. And the chaos is kind of the, the science of that. I always mm -hmm. say uh, the only thing you can predict is unpredictability. So you should train for that and not in spite of it. It kind of reminds, so I was, it, this kind of brings up, uh, I forget which blog post it was that I had read of yours. It was, um, I don't remember. It was the one, it was one of the ones on aggression um, and how you were discussing how in some situations counter conditioning and desensitization may not actually work. I think it was actually, it was a strange 
the stranger aggression uh blog post if i recall right i thought um, it was the one about I, guarding owner guarding. owners yeah guarding, guarding owners, owners. Yeah. that was it yeah. yes yeah the guarding owners mm-hmm. that was the one and yeah. um it it kind of remind as you're saying that it reminded me of of this where we're we're taught that this is maybe something that you should do in xyz scenario but then there are situations where counter conditioning and desensitization may actually not be uh, effective i know i know when i was on your podcast it was actually a topic we touched on where i had said uh, i had said something very similar especially when we're talking about owner guarding or stranger directed uh, issues of territorial based uh, aggression um so i i, I want to get since this kind of like came up a little i want to i want to like dive into that a little bit um Mm -hmm. because i think this is something that all the training um methodologies run into everyone's you know regardless of what you agree or disagree with you're taught something and oh well it should work this way and then all of a sudden it doesn't work that way or it isn't effective or it actually may be making something worse or contributing to a bigger problem. Absolutely. Um, so one of the reasons I'm I'm hesitant to use uh, counter conditioning in owner guarding cases um, is because, well, first of all, counter conditioning is a, a very linear um, and simplistic assumption of how behavior and emotions work. Like, oh, if you have a negative thing just add positive um and you will make the negative go away with enough positive um like one plus one equals two um and that looks good on paper uh but sometimes it it begins to fall apart and one of the areas that i find that it does fall apart sometimes is definitely owner guarding cases where the um the owner or guardian as a, a proxy resource for other things such as food um, what can begin to occur is the the more high value treats you're giving the dog, the higher the value of the guardian by proxy, and thus the higher the stakes of guarding the guardian. Um, this is why often in owner guarding cases, I'm uh, addressing more of the social dynamics in the home on the daily and kind of how those relationships are playing out more so than putting the dog in situations where there are triggers present, um, mostly because um, a lot of the the guarding dynamics are kind of fueled by how the dog is interacting on the daily with their guardian. Um, and then, you know, once there's a, there's competition for the guardian's uh, proximity, uh, such as like another dog or another person around the guardian, um, if you just keep increasing the value of that guardian then there's more to guard um and you you can wind up oh go ahead sorry brian no go ahead go ahead Uh, i was gonna say um you can you can plateau very easily in this sort of area where the dog perceives that the uh at some distance the benefits of not engaging in conflict are good because you're you know you're getting the food but at a certain distance it goes from zero to a hundred is now the um the benefits of guarding based on the proximity of the trigger have flipped and now the benefit of guarding the owner is higher than the benefit of not guarding um and that kind of creates this uh like jekyll and hyde behavior 
where the dog is looking pretty good with the counter conditioning protocol. And then just something happens. Like maybe the other dog holds eye contact for too long or engages in some kind of like social challenge, uh, like barking back. And like, that's when we go get this like 180 flip in behavior, like straight to, uh, you know, zero to zero out of 10, uh, to 10 out of 10, uh, reaction to the trigger. Um, and the food is not going to make that better in my opinion. When you say, when you were saying before, you like to address more of the, um, dynamic in the home between the family members or that specific individual, like what is, what does that look like? Like, what do you mean by, what do you mean by that? Um, like, give me, I guess, an example of what that would, what that might look like for, for a case. Absolutely. So, um, in, in one of my articles, I talked about how conflict is fractal. And, and what that means is it kind of follows this power law curve where like for every 10 out of 10 conflict you have, you have a lot more like one out of 10 conflicts. Like um, imagine you're an alien, right? Investigating the history of human conflict, but your perception threshold was such that you could only see like 10 out of 10 conflicts. You would look at the human race and be like, okay, like they've only fought two times. (laughs) Yeah. You know, other than these two world wars, humans are pretty peaceful. Um, But if you lower your perception threshold for what conflict looks like, you can see, you know, for every 10 out of 10 conflict, there's some nine out of 10s. There's a little bit more eight out of 10s. There's some more six out of 10s and many more one out of 10s. So if I'm seeing like 10 out of 10 level conflict, you know, some World War II stuff going on with this dog, where are all the one out of 10 conflicts that I'm missing? So that's usually going to be occurring in the form of subtle social pressure that the dog is using in other contexts. So for example, um, like jumping on the guardian. So like that might be an example of the dog putting social pressure on another individual and then perhaps like getting some kind of benefit from it um for like example the, atten- uh, the like the owner's attention you mean mm-hmm. yeah so like maybe it gets the owner's attention or the uh owner turns and walks away which uh you know yielding space the dog learns okay i, I put pressure on humans and they move back um and kind of learning and concept in this like one out of ten area well, i put pressure on the human I get some kind of benefit, beneficial outcome, but the the dog is generally not going to engage in a lot of conflict with the owner because the stakes of uh, damaging that social relationship are too high because that person feeds you and takes you for walks and stuff like that. So the dog may cap how much conflict they're willing to engage in with the owner at like maybe jumping or barking at them uh, when they want something. Um, but with a stranger, you know, or a, a random dog, there is no relationship to harm so the uh there's no cost to engaging in that kind of conflict so kind of like in concept something as little as uh like jumping on the owner could butterfly out to um being quite aggressive to a stranger um and i've actually found okay like let's address this jumping on the guardian uh that's going on here and that does deflate a lot of the reaction down the line I'm glad you're bringing this up and it was something that I wanted to talk to you about 
because I feel sometimes I will read other posts on social media and then feel like a terrible person for at times micromanaging my dog. So I have three dogs and they're all very different. And I do find that addressing little issues that seem innocent is why I'm able to live peacefully with the three of them. So to your example, if I am petting one of my dogs and another one of my dogs sees that as an opportunity to run over and jump on me or get in between me and that dog that I'm petting, that's an issue. It doesn't look like it's an issue. It doesn't look like it. Oh yeah. he's just. And then you'll hear like, Oh, he's jealous and he's trying to get pets. And then you'll pet him too. Like, no, like, you just did something I do not like. And I let you know, I don't like that. Um, and then I'm able to avoid other conflicts and maybe it would lead to nothing like you're saying, but maybe it will butterfly out. So that's just what, I don't know if that, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like when I hear you talk, like that's a situation. Uh, Cause the other thing you said was like, I've seen, I've told my dog not to do a thing. And like you're saying, he doesn't want to have that conflict with me. And then he'll go and put that energy towards another one of my dogs. And then now I need to follow up and let him know, look, my Labrador is an extension of me. And just because I told you to leave me alone doesn't mean that you're going to now fucking bother him because he knows that the Labrador is just going to put up with it for now, at least like what you're saying, like for now he will. Um, so no, if I tell you don't jump on me, that doesn't mean get off of me and then go bother the other dog. Like now I'm following through and I will follow you dude. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, <laughs> you know, and I, and I, you guys might be like, holy shit, Vinny is losing his mind. But no, like, so is that what you're explaining? Like in my situation, like I'm trying to give an actual situation mm-hmm. of, of what I okay. feel like this, li- this, this looks like. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I agree. I could not agree more. Um, if you think of yourself as like a food bowl of love and affection, you know, and, and one dog's eaten out of that food bowl and you're, you're giving that dog some pets and another dog walks up, you know, and starts also trying to eat out of that food bowl of love and affection. You know, if, if you weren't a person and you were just a food bowl, that would be uh, room for conflict um, because the resource is getting stolen. Um, and, and so often, um, like micro conflict like that, such as, you know, splitting or, um, you know, trying to one dog trying to correct the other for like getting attention from the human and stuff like that, you know, or, or putting social pressure on the other dog, um, rather than, um, you know, sometimes those conflicts fizzle out, but sometimes they can like butterfly out, uh, and create much larger problems. Um, so I agree hundred percent with that as far as um, preventing those micro conflicts, because if you, if you don't have stealing, then you don't have guarding. Mm-hmm. So very often, you know, the dog will see, uh, okay, there's an opportunity for attention. Like I should go steal some attention from the other dog that seems to be getting more than me. Um, and some dogs might tolerate that, but some dogs might not. And it might not look like, you know, a 10 out of 10 conflict at first. It might just look like, some some body positioning or like checking or maybe like um or jumping on or, or pushing or something like that 
um, or maybe like a, a game of chase where it's not so much a game, it's the dog actually chasing the other dog away from a, a resource that they perceived as valuable. Um, and then eventually, you know, it becomes like a fight. Uh, and so often we're like, where did this come from? Like this is popping up out of nowhere, but it had been ramping up the whole time in these sort of like micro conflicts that have uh, accumulated over time. Um, and dogs don't have short-term memory loss, uh, as many people like to think that they do. Um, and they remember that like, oh, like you've, you've stolen my resources for the last time, dude, you know, and I've had it. It's funny. I'm, I'm glad that Vinny actually brought this example up because <clears throat> I was thinking about, um, I was thinking a little bit about stealing and how you know people give their dogs toys or bone and then oh the puppy runs over to take the other dog's you know item and the the dog might be passive and then over time it becomes a bigger problem and like how i always look at it kind of similar to what Vinny actually said but i might word it a little bit i word it a little i may word it a little differently but i do say to to clients a lot of the time look the older dog or whoever you know that dog was there first that dog is an extension, like what Vinny was saying, an extension of you. And when we bring that newer dog in, this is how I coexist with this dog. And now you're coming in and I'm going to teach you how we coexist. I'm not going to change my entire household or lifestyle for the new the new puppy. Like, okay, yeah, potty training, et cetera. But, but I'm not like going to uh, start changing all of these things just to convenience the puppy and oh it's okay you can steal this you could no 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 that's not allowed this is that's not what we did before and that's not going to start now you know that like that's how i kind of look at it so i'm kind of glad that you're you're uh you guys are bringing this up and and sort of by extension um uh you know the the puppy might be testing boundaries um mm -hmm. in in a 100%. new social group Yep. Um, and, and discovering, oh, by, by pushing boundaries, by putting pressure on another dog, by taking what I want, I get what I want, you know, and yep. that might be innocent yeah, at first, um, but the dog learns in concept, oh, put pressure on others, have a beneficial outcome, you know, and then, uh, three, three years later, you know, you've got a dog that, uh, might be doing a lot more than, than what you saw when they were a puppy. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's butterfly affected out. Um, and that's where, like, I think the easiest and safest place to be intervening on conflict is in those sort of micro conflicts where it's, it's much simpler to just be like, Hey, don't steal from other dogs before it becomes a problem. Yeah. What I explain to clients is I make the analogy to cars and speed and, if we can put the brakes on at 10 miles per hour and stop this car, like then you'll be able to build up those brakes for when the car is going a hundred. A lot of people wait until the dogs are going a hundred to then be like, how do I stop? How do I pull my dogs apart from each other when they're biting <laughs> each other on the neck? Right. But they're kind of overlooking this other stuff. So you've, you've brought up pressure a lot and dogs putting pressure on each other. I'm wondering what kind of pressure you might suggest, if at all, an, an owner would put on their dogs or you might put on your own personal dogs. 
Um, so like in what context? So social pressure. Um, in the context of you're watching a dog putting pressure on one of your other dogs. Um, do you feel like in order to in order to navigate these situations the owner needs to be able to have a dog that yields to them um it, it definitely is case dependent um as far as like conflict between two dogs uh very often just obviously safety first um but at, at a certain sort of like level of conflict you can diffuse conflict by just kind of like stepping in between the dogs and refereeing them physically by just you don't need to be grabbing or yelling or anything but just like noticing so just the like conflict, spatial pressure up. just like spatial pressure yeah and, okay um sometimes that doesn't work though uh and sometimes there's like this uh shoot the mediator kind of thing um <laughs> Like one time I had a case with uh, four dogs, all resource guarding from each other, all different age ages, all different breed groups. Um, and naturally I had asked them to set this up differently and they did not. And I walked into all four dogs fighting as I walked into this session. Each dog had a toy that they were trying to protect um, while simultaneously trying to steal every other dog's toy. <laughs> um, so it was just like this eight way, you know, cluster of conflict. So um, I, I knew these dogs, I knew their history. So I, I did feel safe stepping in between them. I wouldn't do this if I didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. But any anytime I saw a steal attempt about to occur, I just stepped in between the dogs and I faced off the dog that was trying to steal something. Um, and it taught the dogs three things. It taught them one, um, there's no point in trying to steal resources because Brian's going to stop you. Two, there's no point in guarding your resources because no one's trying to steal anything anyways. And three, Brian can read your mind. So dogs have terrible <laughs> poker faces, and it's so obvious that they are lusting after the other dog's toy. And if you can step in between before a conflict even happens, when the dog is thinking about engaging in conflict, they can be like, oh, wow, how did you read my mind? I better not even think about stealing toys. Um, and, and that worked for three of the dogs. The, the fourth dog it didn't work for was a six-month-old male intact golden retriever who thought he was hot shit and everything belonged to him. Um, and when I stepped in between with him, he wanted to go in between my legs and he wanted to go around me and he wanted to jump on me and you know, knit my pants and all that stuff. He was very frustrated and he thought every toy was his and he should be able to steal everything. Um, so for him, uh, stepping in between wasn't working and I just kind of had to remove him from that situation anytime he tried to steal something. So I just put him behind a baby gate. Uh, he wasn't too happy about that, but... Once he calmed back down, he got to come back in and uh, hang out with everyone. And as soon as he tried to steal something again, I just removed him, put him back behind the baby gate, gave him a chance to cool off. Uh, after two repetitions of that, he came out. He's like, I'm not stealing nothing from nobody. And he grabbed his toy and he jumped up on the couch. And then the other dogs were like, oh, okay, you know, he's actually kind of not stealing our stuff anymore. You know, so the other dogs were feeling safer around him. Uh, at the end of that session, all four dogs were laying next to each other, enjoying their own toys, you know, no conflict. Um, in fact, that golden, he looked up at me, I looked back at him, and he was like, I'm not stealing anything. <laughs> um, but by preventing those very small conflicts, uh, we were able to prevent the large ones. 
See, now this is where I have my hard time and the listeners get mad at my questions. So I'm going to try to separate these into two. So I have a question I had for you and then a question follow up what you were just talking about. I, I feel like this is why I like to intentionally add some conflict to my training with my dog when I'm training with my dog one-on-one. Um, and maybe I'll, I'll explain a, a simple, just say, explain a simple version of that. Cause yeah. I know that sounds like that's horrible. <laughs> if I no, cause, cause we're talking about putting the brakes on and the micro yeah. and this and the small things. If I'm teaching my dog to sit and I drop a treat on the floor on accident when I'm going to feed him and the treat hits the floor, I might teach that dog no and step into him with my body and say, no, you, you lost that one to hit the floor. And it might seem mean and it might seem irrelevant and it might seem like, why would you be doing that? But if I can't get my dog in my basement alone with me to move away from one piece of kibble that I accidentally dropped on the floor, which yeah, it was for him in the beginning. How am I going to stop him when he's going after my other dog? Like it's the skill that I'm teaching him there. And again, this is case dependent. And if you have a dog that's shut down and scared and you walk towards him, he shits his pants and never wants to train again. Don't do it. And if you're doing your initial puppy training engagement, I'm just trying to think of all the hate comments that I'm getting. If you're doing your initial (laughs) training with a scared dog, don't do this. But what I'm saying is if you have a nine month old Malinois that's like muzzle punching you in the stomach to do the next behavior and you drop a treat on the floor and he goes to get it and you say no. And then you just kind of step towards him. It's a positive thing. And then when he backs up, you give him a treat right away and you make it a positive experience. Like that's why I do teach my dogs no, or I do teach them, hey, don't do that thing. Or I teach them to yield to spatial pressure. And I teach them like a no reward marker, you know, because I see some of these things are completely demonized. So um, when they can be useful further down the road, um, when there is conflict between two dogs. So I'm wondering if you completely disagree with that, you could tell Mm -hmm. me that's fine. It's, it's cool. I'm just wondering, do you see that as a way of exposing the dog to a micro you know situation and working on a skill yeah um so for that that makes me think more about how resources are acquired Mm -hmm. um whether resources are acquired from neutral space or whether resources are acquired from humans um so for example like if i have uh if i have two dogs that that resource guard treats and they live in the same house um and chaotic things happen you drop treats you're cooking and something falls on the floor um you can't predict these things but if you train for them then you're not going to have an issue so if i have two dogs that um once they acquire a resource will then guard it um and i were to accidentally drop a piece of food in between them i would want the default response of both dogs to be to move away from that food perhaps mm-hmm. sit or lay down or or even just remain standing, but move away from the food for sure. Um, and then maybe give me like some eye contact or something um, in essence to say like, please, can I have that rather than just going for it? 
you know, if you have two dogs and you drop a piece of food between them, and they both believe that acquiring resources from neutral space is done through adding pressure, both dogs will run at each other's heads and then engage in conflict over the piece of food. But if the dogs learn that uh, resource acquisition comes from taking pressure off, and then you do the same thing, you drop a piece mm -hmm. of food between those two dogs, they move away. Mm -hmm. And neither dog comes to possess the resource, and then you never have a guarding event. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then there's structure involved when you're when you're training that initially. Oh, absolutely. Because um, if the dog were to, you know, go for it and steal it and self-reinforce, um, you know, you're not doing much. <laughs> you would need some way to uh, prevent the dog from acquiring that resource. And that might be spatial pressure or, or leashes. Um, sometimes I'll do things like uh, I'll put treats in a crate, um, but close the crate door so the dog cannot get in um, until they uh, maybe back away from the crate and, and give me some eye contact. And I'm like, yes, of course, I'll open the crate door for you. Just kind of like teaching the concept of taking pressure off a resource in order to acquire it rather than putting pressure on the resource in order to acquire it. Because that's the biggest area where I see a lot of conflict between dogs. Is when they learn that putting pressure on is going to get them to the resource. Yeah, because if, you know, you drop the treat and then they, they go for it and they take it, okay, putting pressure on that resource got me the resource. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then the other question, I'm trying to make sure I don't lose it. With, so... It, in some of this stuff, we are taking away intentionally agency. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to pick on some of these buzz phrases on purpose um, because I, you know, when reading your stuff with the chaos and control and the little, I think you say layered, like layered model of, of the conflicts, there are times where we're intentionally taking away freedoms, taking away acquisition of resources, not letting dogs do exactly what they want at all times. Am I, am I wrong? Like, I just want to, if you could, if I'm completely wrong you clarify, I don't want to put words my, in your mouth uh, or. My, my favorite uh, quote in regards to that, uh, I'm probably going to butcher this. Um, but I believe it was uh, Kim Brophy in one of her interviews with uh, Mike Shikashio, Um, And she was talking about agency and freedom. Um, and the, the quote went something like this. Uh, you know, today we're going to fly a helicopter. And you can push any button you want. You can pull any <laughs> stick you want. You know, like it's your show. You have all the freedom and the choice and the agency in the world. You're not feeling any safer because you don't know how to fly a helicopter. Um. So I love freedom and choice and agency unless giving the dog the freedom and choice to, and agency to make choices uh, could bring harm to others or mm -hmm. other dogs um, or create conflict, et cetera. Um, and that's kind of like that fine line between disorder and order, you know, or chaos and control you know, we we don't want to add so much order and control that all choice and agency is stamped out um, because the dog would probably rebel against that. Um, mm -hmm. But you wouldn't want to just uh, have no structure or control or, or anything like that. 
um, because then you're going to get chaos. So we, per case, per dog, you know, per team, et cetera, we're all kind of uh, figuring that out as we go. Um, and there's no like a strict formula or uh, instruction booklet that we can just read like, oh, this is the exact perfect amount of agency to give every dog, or this is the exact perfect structure to apply to every dog. Um, and that sort of like linear mindset falls apart really quickly when, you know, random things start happening. It reminds me of uh, when I had a few staff members working for me, one of them, I gave her too much freedom, I guess you could say, um, for certain things like making her schedule and, and some other things. And not having that structure for her made it so much more stressful. Once I, you know, added rules and said, okay, this isn't working. This is what we need to do moving forward. She was actually so grateful for it. You know, I thought like, cause for me, I, for me, I enjoy and thrive on more of the independence of being able to have certain choices that I can make. Whereas she needed me to help her um, thrive by having certain structure in place. So it kind of exactly. reminds, it kind of reminds me of that from a human example. And, um, you know, even like multi-dog homes. I mean, I have, I have one, some people know, like I have one dog he, journey. He's, he's four. He's uh a little bit gentler of a soul. <laughs> and then I have my younger dog quest who her nickname is rebel for a reason. And, you know, like she, like I needed to be on top of her a lot more. I needed to, she needed more, more rules in order to thrive uh, in my house and not cause a lot of chaos, I guess you could say. <laughs> Whereas like with journey, I was able to allow him to have like certain additional freedoms because of just who he is as a dog, you know, whereas quest, like if she practices something one time, it's going to be there forever. So making sure kind of like to Vinny's point, making sure putting certain things in place ahead of time, because I kind of knew who she was a little as I met her. And, uh, you know, there were certain things I had to put in place that I didn't need to do with my other dog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's where I think a lot of professional intuition comes in, you know, and like knowing the dog in front of you um, and why I'm, I'm not a big fan of very uh, cookie cutter approaches where we just kind of like make these linear assumptions about all dogs and then start applying the same thing to all of them. Um, that falls apart pretty quickly in my experience. Yeah, while you're on that topic of all dogs, you wrote about it in your blog post and we didn't touch on it and I wanted to, was the assumption that most dogs with, I don't know if your example is leash reactivity or it might've been the, the owner guarding is rooted in fear that like every dog is this like fearful shut down anxious 
you know, dog that needs just counter conditioning and cookies. Um, I feel like that's done a lot of harm. And, you know, as someone that personally has three dogs that can be difficult and none of them are fit that, I noticed that a lot of the, not that there's cookie cutter stuff out there, but a lot of the mainstream ideas around training dogs, at least the modern scientific approach of it doesn't help me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, telling me that I just need a 15 foot leash for my Malinois to walk him down the street without him pulling is almost laughable like you know like oh your Malinois is pulling even my even my hunting Labrador like to just be like oh your dog is pulling on leash just get a 12 foot leash and then you'll be good you know is is almost silly you know and I don't know maybe after training dogs for 10 years I just suck <laughs> like maybe I'm just a terrible I, dog I just, trainer I just want to interrupt to the to I want to interrupt your point that that was on um you were comparing in um you were comparing fear and how people uh, or professionals seem to identify a lot of reactive or aggressive behavior as fear-based yeah uh, like what about versus, the dog that fucking versus, wants to get over there you know ver- what yeah, I mean? versus, <laughs> yeah like versus uh versus anger um yeah and I know yeah we're distinguished- this was the point we were wanting yeah, to that, talk about so I, yeah that's yeah. why I, you kind of went off so i wanted to just yeah we want to sorry bring me back to earth yeah. i like it yeah. that's why anthony's here so yeah <laughs> like and not to say that there aren't dogs that are truly fearful and shut down and anxious and nervous and all that stuff is great for them, you know, like get the longer leash and get get all that. But there are some pissed off dogs out there that are ready to go. They're yeah. ready to fucking go, dude. That's just, I don't know how else to say it. And then if you yeah, put a 15 um, foot leash on them and bring some cookies with you, it's going to be, it's going to be pretty exciting. So yeah. What, yeah. What do you have to say? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't need any research papers to tell me what an angry dog looks like and what a fearful dog looks like. I've seen fear and I've seen anger. Um, they look different. And honestly, I feel like we We've just been told that it's fear so often that now that when we see anger, we just assume it's fear um, mm-hmm. because we've been told it over and over and over and over and over again. Um, but like, if you were never told that it was fear and you were seeing this behavior for the first time, would you call it anger or would you call it fear? And you know, in so many cases, uh, you know, not all of them, of course, but you'd be like, this is an angry dog. Dog is angry. <laughs> They're not afraid of the thing that they're trying to take down. Yeah, I had a case. It's so funny you're saying this. This is a, I had a case that I don't I don't know what possessed me to post the video, honestly, of the dog. I, I ended up taking it down in the end because so many people were writing that the dog was was totally afraid when this dog like this dog was just so forward, so confident. He was huge. He was, I mean, this dog was like, he's like a nine, I don't know, 90 pound, almost hundred pound pity, like just one of those big, you know, pities. And I remember it was so interesting when I was in the house, I, I remember the owner saying he's usually good with people. And I was like, mm, <laughs> I don't know, something just felt weird. Right. So the dog was away. And so I said, bring him out, like, but have the muzzle on him, have him on leash. 
And thank God that they did because the dog ended up, the dog ended up like, didn't realize I was there at first because the whole family was in the living room. And then he realized, oh, new person, like came into me, slammed into my stomach. And then we went outside on a walk and like this dog just like was lasered in. He like, there was nothing fearful about this dog. And uh, they had like three other trainers and, and everyone said it was fear and just, you know, to counter condition and desensitize him, but that wasn't working for that dog. You know, like that, that dog was so confident. He didn't care about, he didn't care about the food. He was more interested in it was a nice little bonus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, Pay me he's more you. interested. He's more no, interested in, in doing his job and, and, you know, protecting his owner. Um, I, 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 it's actually, I should share the videos with you guys. Cause I have so many videos of, I, I, I work, I had a few sessions with this client and I mean, I should send you the videos just so you could see it and tell me what you guys actually think. Because Post maybe it. I'm totally I totally agree. Wrong. <laughs> Post <laughs> it on I'm... Instagram. Let's go. No, just not on Instagram. No, no. Please like and subscribe. Comments below. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you this: What? So, um, because I actually, I that I I loved that point because I think that it is brought up a lot. I think it's in a lot of a lot of the courses. You know that we that we all learn from a lot of the conferences that we all learn from. It's constantly brought up that the majority of these behaviors, reactive or aggressive behaviors, fear-based. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, I'm curious, like for you, what does that, what does that angry dog look like? when you picture it in your head, because when I was looking, when I had read your, your blog, I, I felt like one thing that you didn't mention actually was what for you, what anger looked like in a dog. And I was kind of curious because I think, I think that that's something that's important because I think part of the problem is since we're told so much of behavior is fear and anxiety based, this is what it looks like that we're never told what anger looks like i think sue sternberg's work uh shines a nice light on on it i don't know if you're familiar with her work but i think her work really shines a nice light on dogs who are very confident or may have a little bit of that anger uh to them but i'm curious what you what it looks like for you yeah for me um so i i love this subject um but i'm generally not even using the word anger or fear um, to categorize behavior, I'm more looking at pressure. Um, is the dog trying to to take pressure off? Or are they trying to put pressure on? Mm -hmm. um, and and that can manifest both in fear or anger in in various ways. Um, but the one one of the key things I'm looking for, like uh, kind of regardless of what label I put on it, is you know is the dog closing distances? Are they projecting social pressure um through eye contact or barking um and, and this kind of goes into um some of the uh the costs and benefits of conflict um and what is the dog's perspective of the costs and benefits of conflict 
So like um, many of us have seen the the video of two dogs barking at each other through the fence that they open. So these two dogs are barking at each other. They're going crazy. Um, and in that current state, the benefits of conflict outweighed the potential costs, the costs being just the energy you expend and the benefits being potentially you, you push away the, uh, the other dog. Um, and then they open the fence and the dogs follow the fence barking at each other until the fence is fully receded. And once the fence is fully receded, they look at each other and they walk away. Because once that barrier was gone, the costs and benefits of conflict were different. Now physical injury was one of the potential costs, um, and the costs outweighed the benefits of conflict, and conflict ceased. Um, and that's why on Facebook, people will talk shit that they would not say, say in that's person like when because they get punched in the face. In real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, say that again, um, Vinny? I said it's like when two trolls on the internet meet each other in real life. All of a sudden, it's like yeah, they're, they're, they're like, not oh, going to say that really stuff. That. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I I believe dogs don't instantly lose all cognitive sense when they uh, start engaging in conflict. I think their brains are still working, um, and they're weighing costs and benefits in many contexts. And that's why you know in that video with the dogs barking at each other through the fence or the fence gate. And when it opened, the conflict ceased as soon as the circumstances changed. Um, and, and so often, you know, with leash reactivity, we have two dogs that are barking at each other, you know, on leash, um, because in those contexts, the benefits of conflict outweigh the cost. And once the dogs actually meet, they stop barking at each other. Um, and sometimes they, they get along fine um, because now the costs and benefits are different. Um, so... I think it's a lot more nuanced and complex than is a negative emotional state. That's it. And we'll just add some positive emotional states and good to go. You know, uh, one plus one equals two. You know, and you not to like go back to what we were talking about before and then off, we're going off the trail of what we were just talking about. But you reminded me again about inter-household stuff and cost benefit and with multiple dogs. And my original question to you with should should the owner be able to put pressure on the dog or should something be expensive? Because if if you can, if you have a good relationship with your dog and then you can take that relationship away, like I feel like that's why not to just sound like I'm just like crazy over here. Like I have a very good relationship with my dog. So they value it. So if I take that away, it actually like, it's almost not to give people that want to like punish their dog an incentive. But <laughs> if you have a better relationship with your dog and your dog values you more, it's more of a hit if that relationship is taken away. Does that you guys follow that or no? Yeah. Um, Does that sound I, like I've, I follow. Um, and so this is kind of where, um, like when there's conflict occurring and I need to adjust the costs and benefits of conflict in a given scenario, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of like all the camps and names and labels and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah but I do not, I, I do not I don't use even know uh, what I'm prongs in, or so e-collars. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I do not use uh, aversive consequences in those contexts. Uh-huh. Um, but I may use social consequences. 
um, such as uh, a brief removal from the social group. As a can I just stop you right there, for... not to cut you off completely, yeah. but I find it. Um, I I I know it's like this is like the new thing of like I'm not picking on you because I do the same thing of like I'm not in a camp, but like I don't use this and this. What what I find weird that I've been playing around with myself. So I'm not criticizing you. It's like a critic. It's like something that I've done towards myself when I've thought about this recently about tools that I use and won't use. I know for sure for at least two of my three dogs, social pressure is more aversive than if I were to use an electric collar or a prong collar at certain degrees. And that's interesting to me, <laughs> you know, and when someone will say like, oh, well, I don't use e-collars or prongs, um, but like I'll use a thing that might be more, you know, you know what I mean? Like this is back to like, the learner decides what averse, like what is aversive. Um, and again, I'm not criticizing, I'm not, I'm not meaning to that to sound like an attack towards you. I'm doing it because I personally have used social pressure on my dogs and it had an effect that was so extreme that I was like, whoa, like I didn't realize that that had the potential to do that. Where I've also used, cause I've, I've put tools on my dogs and I've used tools on my dogs and doesn't even compare. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And that's, that's definitely an area where, um, the, the definitions of the words that we're using, uh, is variable. Um, so I, I did a, I think I did an article on this, um, information entropy. So entropy is kind of a, a, a very complex topic, um, but in simple terms, it's sort of like a measurement of disorder um, mm -hmm. and more specifically a measurement of how many possible states that a system can be in. So if you think about the, um, the many possible states of a word, so like the many possible states of the word aversive, the many possible states of the word reward, um, it's, it's extremely variable. Um, and I, I find a lot of discussions are very difficult to have, um, when everyone has a slightly different interpretation of a word. So I think, mm -hmm. um, in a lot of these cases, uh, many people aren't even arguing about the same thing. Um, cause yeah, one person yeah. has like, might think of the word and have a different picture in their mind than mm -hmm. what the person that they're speaking to has, um, that's where like the definitions of words definitely uh, appear on gradients. Um, so things like pressure or aversiveness or rewarding, et cetera. A lot of those things kind of occur in spectrums, um, which is why uh, a lot of these topics kind of uh, fall off the deep end. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> um, but yeah, to, to your point of uh, the, yeah, the aversiveness of social pressure and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's it's going to depend. It's going to depend on the relationship. It's going to depend on the dog. It's going to depend on, you know, uh, an infinite number of factors, um, which is why I think these sort of discussions are so important uh, because we can kind of like get into the nuance of like, okay, well, for two of these dogs, you know, this worked and for the third, it didn't. 
Um, and that's because uh, there's variability in dogs and therefore there should be variability in how we look at them. Yeah, that's a good point. And you sound like a um, linguistic anthropologist, which I love. I That's one of my, um, I, I went to college for psychology and then ended up accidentally majoring in anthropology also because I just found it interesting. And that was something that we learned in linguistic anthropology, which is like, there's, I forget if it was like two or three different meanings to every phrase or sentence, which is like what the person said how it was interpreted and then what the person meant. And I feel like that's what happens a lot is we say a thing and we mean something, but then people have these preconceived notions of what they see those words. Like all these words have feelings behind them. Um, Absolutely. And I was a victim um, to that myself, you know, like where I'm like, oh, like I don't want to use a tool because that tool has to be worse but then I'm like oh shit like it's actually not and then you have this you know you have to kind of deal with this where you have to fight against that urge mm -hmm. the um another kind of like linguistic uh, uh offshoot there is um how much the uh energy expended in in communication is uh taken accounted for so like we're always facing like riding that fine line between uh spending too much energy over explaining you know and then you can get really nitty-gritty and, and and get into the details but then you have like a whole textbook and no one reads it <laughs> or you conserve you know um energy and you use words that have uh wider definitions for the sake of energy conservation but you might not convey the same information I kind of look at words like little zip files for a computer. So like we can uh, we can compress information and concepts into letters. Um, and unfortunately, letters have to appear linearly. Um, I wish I could stack all the words on top of each other and get very chaotic with it. Um, <laughs> but we have to kind of like compress concepts and, and language into these little bite-sized pieces. And... Um, the words you choose to use wind up kind of being like your compression algorithm. Or if you use a lot of vague words, you don't use a lot of energy conveying them, but you get misinterpreted very easily. Mm. And then the opposite extreme where you use a lot of really specific words, much like I do sometimes. Um, and then uh, the, the point gets lost because I'm kind of like uh, um, the file size is too large. Um, so along those lines, uh it's it's tough to kind of like conserve that energy while also um conveying information as you intended to do and then when it's vague people might fill in the gaps to fit their own i mean you look at popular music like look at the beatles a lot of their songs that are super popular it's like let it be let it be let it be let it be <laughs> You know, it's just so simple that it's able, <laughs> and he's laughing over there. No, but it's true. I mean, and it's, there is a poetic genius to that, to being able to write, you know, a poem or a lyric that the three of us can all listen to and apply our own life, which might be completely different from each other to that. And it makes sense. Whereas if the lyrics are very specific, we might feel completely irrelevant to it. And be like, oh, this song doesn't speak to me at all. Um, 
but back to dog training because that's what we're doing here and we got to be careful <laughs> because we're like almost two hours in and we're talking about people you know not having this the attention fine. i guess only an hour we're good we're good we got time no, we're, so only back an to, hour in there. we're an hour so we got an hour left no i'm kidding uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> see how chaotic brian wants to get um mm -hmm. so let's see because now we're all over the place so i gotta get more i gotta get more organized in the chaos a little too chaotic a little too chaotic saying we need some order <laughs> some order so how do we have order while still maintaining chaos and a point i wanted to bring up sometimes i feel like wait for this one this one's gonna be crazy if we are if we have less order and allow more chaos we actually can have more order what do we think with that Wait, so, so yes. do you want me to give you an example or should I just let you guys think no. about that first? Yeah, yeah, give an I, example. I got it. I, I oh, want to yeah, give an example for first. Anthony, but I know what you're saying. <laughs> okay. So, I don't know. Now you're making me give an example for him, but maybe I'm really giving the example for you. I don't know. I see what you're doing there, Brian. <laughs> you want me to just jump in? <laughs> no, I'm I uh, already know what I'm going to say. Okay. So, an example that I've used before on this podcast is someone comes to my house or I'm watching TV or I just want to eat dinner and not have my dog blah, 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 and jump on me. I could teach him to go to a place and stay on the place and not move off the place. Right. And we're giving the dog that like very specific thing to do. But then like you're saying is if there's too much order, what is that thing crave is more chaos because we're like making it be so orderly. Whereas if we just tell the dog, look, you could do whatever you want. You could carry your toy around. You can go up on the couch. You can go lay down on the mat over there. You can walk around in circles. Like, I don't give a shit what you do, but just don't jump on the table while I'm eating. Right? So like more chaos, but then because of that, now we're ultimately going to have more order because you're allowing the inevitably chaotic thing, which is a, a seven month old puppy or whatever it is some chaos which is going to be more orderly than the chaos that would erupt from like forced order it makes sense um so well, i think what we're looking was that in fucking here... english i just gotta ask you was that, what the fuck was brian that? understands me and brian i he, got he you i got He's you got it i think so it might I, not have been the in english second though, but before you even gave me the example i was like i know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about um so this kind of brings me into uh like the the homeostasis state or like um in in chaos math we would call this like the strange attractor so it's almost like a, a point in the the math that has like a gravitational pull to it so like it's where the system wants to be um so like the further you are from the the gravitational center of that attractor the more force it's going to need to kind of pull you towards it um and what that might look like is um you know adding in too much order as the system fights to reach its sort of like equilibrium point it's going to sway way over um versus if you're kind of like already near that equilibrium point and we're only moving it like a tiny bit you know, in the sense of like, here's all this freedom, but just don't jump on the coffee table. Mm -hmm. um, 
you're you're much more likely to kind of be like right at that equilibrium point you know and equilibrium points uh are non-linear they kind of move around you know they're not so easy to pin down it's not a perfect science um but the further you are from it the more problems you're going to have um and those problems are going to make themselves apparent to you very quickly see anthony it makes total sense now But I think that's important. I think all jokes aside, you know, growing up, I would always have that uncle or friend or neighbor that had a dog that they barely trained and they were strict on a few things, but otherwise they kind of just let the dog be a dog and the dogs were great. And sure, it could be a genetic thing. It could be a luck thing, but I see it anecdotally over and over and i feel like there's something there there's something to that i don't know if that I, invokes I any type of thought and um yeah. and like kind of one of the areas where i see like too much order kind of backfire um is sometimes in households that do too much obedience training mm -hmm. and uh like so imagine you go to a restaurant right and the waiter comes up to you with your food and they look you in the eyes and they say say please <laughs> and then you say please and then they just look at you and they're like all right it's going to be 15 seconds i'm building up your patience you would lose your mind and this yeah. is the only restaurant that you can go to <laughs> um so what can kind of happen is uh you know in, in a household with like a lot of obedience uh or too much obedience for that specific dog at least um the human is sort of perceived as both the provider and the consistent denier of the resource um and i've seen resource guarding pop up because the dog is just so annoyed with the whole obedience process that they'd rather the human just not be involved at all like once you've given me the food just screw off because <laughs> mm -hmm. you're over here selling saying no 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 leave it leave it you know say please etc you know and the dog just had enough of it and just wants to eat yeah, that's interesting. I think, I don't it know, Anthony. I think that I, it's interesting because I hear what you're saying with that. And I think it depends. Obviously, it's going to depend on how someone's doing training. You know, like if you're starting to implement certain little things like certain phrases that mean something, it's going to create more, more clarity in that in-between area that you're kind of discussing, honestly. You know, if you're... Mm -hmm for anything uh starting a training session having a phrase like so like i say want to work with my dogs um you know when we're going to do training and then when we're done with that it's all done and i think that just something simple like that over time as you're consistent with it it provides that um it provides i think certain clarity or information you know obviously Obviously, I feel like when you're not doing those things, I think there's, it depends. I think there's an anticipation that the dog is anticipating something good or bad is going to happen. Or um, I think in some situations, especially if you're talking about a more high drive dog, they're always sitting on the edge of their seat, you know, almost like a little uh, addict in some way. Can I, can I jump in on that? Yeah. Um, 
food in relaxation protocols with high drive dogs um <laughs> where the dog it's is great. like it settles them right out. I've like, talked about this before <laughs> settles them right out um yeah this dog's like you know in this anticipation mode the whole day mm-hmm. and like what does that do to your endocrine system um but it's like look at how hard i'm relaxing am i relaxing hard enough um <laughs> And, yeah. and the dog, yeah, winds up uh, having the opposite effect in some cases. Yeah. You know, I find the same thing with like leash walking. Like, like the way I teach leash walking with my dogs is very different than anything I learn. And it's because essentially that if are you if I start rewarding check ins, either they're not gonna leave me the fuck alone and stare at me and i want to go for a three mile walk and i'm not gonna go for a three mile hike in the woods with my dog staring at me or they're gonna start getting mad because i'm fading out rewards and they're gonna try to start figuring out sub excuse me some type of a chain that includes staring at me in order to get food right so I don't teach my leash walking in terms of a behavior that I'm expecting of my dog, like walking by my side or staring at my face. I teach them little like windows of expectations of what they think they're going to be getting during the walk. And then I either tell them that that is available or it is not. And that's it. Like either you're free or you're not you're walking with me and yielding to leash pressure or you're not. And maybe I also throw in some reward events where you are getting an opportunity for food or toys, but then also I need to be able to shut that door because I'm not going to heal a Malinois through the woods for five miles. Um, and, and that brings me to um, one of the like a more formal obedience concept that I talk about sometimes is uh, like opportunity windows. Mm-hmm. So like the, the, the cue that you give the dog, that's like the, the opening of the window. It's the onset mm-hmm. of such an opportunity. Um, and the dog's trying to figure out when does that window close? Um, and that's where, uh, things can get very ambiguous. The dog is like looking for body language, like, oh, did you close your treat pouch or did you pull out your phone or did you walk away from me? Like looking for all these things that might mean that the window has closed. Um, and then of course, another factor too, is how long that window is open. Like think about the difference between uh, when you have one minute to get the trash to the curb or you have five hours to get the trash to the curb. Same behavior, same consequence, different time frame available. Um, and I see this sometimes with uh, with recall going south where the dog, you know, you call a dog to you and they come right up and you reward them, you know, and then the next time you call them, maybe they lollygag a little bit and then they come over and you reward them. And then the next time you call them, maybe they lollygag a little bit longer and then they come and uh, you reward them. And what happens is they learn the the window of opportunity is much larger than you wanted it to be. And then what occurs there is like, why would the dog come when you open the window when they know it's going to yeah, be open for like be the there. next five minutes? <laughs> um, so uh, to that end, being very clear about when opportunity windows open and close can relieve a lot of anxiety for the dog for um, sure. as well as leaving the window open for too long can cause anxiety. Oh yeah. And then also what is the dog? A lot of times when you do something like that, meaning keeping those windows open forever, 
what is that dog doing once you feed the dog? Like I see a lot of videos of once the handler gives the dog the reward, the dog is like, like completely gone again. Like just like yeah. instead, like if I open up an opportunity window for my dog and I give them a treat, they are then engaged with me. They're not just getting a reward yeah. and then pulling again or getting a reward and then chasing the dog again or getting the reward and then lunging again. They're getting that reward and they're pushing me because they want to work because they know that this opportunity is right now and it might not be in a second or five seconds or 10 seconds. And I so, know it's, yeah, sorry. Um, so this is where I have some beef with uh, conditioning theory. Um, and that is, uh, I don't believe the dog is uh, getting reinforced when you reward them. So like, for example, the word here or come doesn't mm -hmm. mean to the dog, I'm telling you to come here. It means a window in time has opened yeah. up wherein yep. if you come here, you're eligible for an expected outcome. Guess what? If that expected outcome is one piece of food, then here doesn't mean I'm telling you to come here. Here means I have one piece of food. Mm -hmm. And what can happen there is, let's say um, one recall is worth one treat and mm -hmm. the opportunity window closes once the food is given. So when the dog gets to you, they get the one treat and they know that they're only going to get one treat. What's the best way to get another treat to get another recall? What's the mm -hmm. best way to get another recall? Be as far away again. from you as possible. The other thing with that, that I've had arguments with people, but it's fucking, I'm an, I don't know, you two are here, tell me I'm wrong. But if you are, okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> if you are teaching recall, classically conditioning it with high value rewards, assuming you're not using any pressure, you're not using any force, there's no threat of any aversive at any point, you're just classically conditioning a recall. What's the difference between your recall cue and a yes marker? or a marker at all. You're saying, you're making a noise and you're pairing it with a reward. Like you might as well just say yes when your dog is out on the end of the leash. And then if you're marking a behavior, like what you're saying, if you're marking a behavior and your dog is doing something you don't like, like I've seen people say, don't use your marker when your dog is away from you to get them to come back to you because then you might be marking the thing you didn't like them doing but then if you're using a recall cue and your recall cue is not affiliated with any pressure after because you're force free or you're not going to use a tool after and all it is is essentially like you're saying and like hey there's a window to get one treat for me it's just a marker. Like your dog doesn't know English. Like we say all of these things individually, but then putting it together, people have like a brain fart. Like you say that dogs don't know English. You say that it's just sounds. You say that a marker is just a sound that's attributed to a reward. So if you're just saying, come here, and then you're giving them a cookie, what's the difference between that and yes, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Tell me, I, I don't yeah. know. am I wrong? I don't get so, it. Um... Yeah, guess what happens when uh, the dog goes for something that they're not supposed to be picking up and you say leave it and then the dog comes to you and then one leave it is worth one treat. You know, what happens is leave it becomes uh, a classically conditioned uh, reward marker. And then guess what the best way to get another treat is and go after the thing that you were told to leave alone. Yeah, and, and then the behavior chain goes wild with that. 
And then to your point, and the reason why I like using toys is like what Anthony was saying before is like he says ready to his dogs before he plays. My, I don't even, it's going to sound crazy, but like, I don't really have like a, like my dogs don't even know what the fucking word come means. Right. I have other ways of getting their attention. Honestly, my best recall cue is probably ready because I say that before crazy so fun funny. stuff and it doesn't yeah. equal one treat. It, it equals a game. And then if I work on that game and I make that game insane, my ready cue could mean a 20 minute tug session where I'm fighting with you on the side of the road. So when I say ready, it's like, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's out there. Now I do teach leash pressure to my, my dogs and I also teach what I guess I would consider a command because then it's different where I call them to come. And if they don't leash pressure is coming. And I know that's not for everyone, but like I do that because out of all my stuff, again, with chaos is I like to give my dogs as much chaos as possible. And I find having a rock solid recall is the way that I can do that. And I know that's such like the cliche. Oh, that's what everyone says. That's the reason why. But like, yeah, I could give a shit if I ask my dog to sit and they don't. But if I say come, you better. And I'm not just going to hope that you're going to bet on me all the time. Now I'll for sure go ready. Come here. You know, and usually 99% of the time that works, but I have that get like off, you know, I say off and like, now nah, you got to, but I don't even use it. I don't even have to, because of what we're saying is like, it's not just a marker for one treat. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I just went oh, on man, and that, a... <laughs> no worries. Um, and that, that winds up being um, a, a dual opportunity. So like the, the opportunity to both earn uh a desired expected outcome and avoid an undesired expected outcome. Yeah. It's very difficult for you to do the wrong thing. You're going to be unsuccessful. Um, and look, I have this amazing thing that you love over here. And for a dog that's super motivated, I know not every dog is like my Malinois. I've never, uh, it's terrible, but I haven't even really taught him a recall cue. Like he has a whistle cue for Mondeering. And I can say ready to him, but he's so tuned in and jacked all he wants is to play and to work that just telling him that the opportunity to work is now available will recall him, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. God, I could go uh, for hours on this stuff. I, I'm so obsessed with. I don't want to um, keep you. Chaos, if you're obsessed, like... <laughs> like, I'm good. I don't know if Anthony's going to sleep um, <laughs> But, uh, what I've found is a lot of people have trouble absorbing a lot of this stuff in one sitting. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I learned uh, about chaos theory, um, I absorbed over the course of months. Um, mm -hmm. And then I kind of blow it all up right here. Um, and some people, it's like too much at once. Um, so I try not to go too deep too fast uh, because I found I just kind of get lost along the way. Um, I'm sure Anthony doesn't understand half the things I say. <laughs> he's like you're yeah, talking. No. He's like speak English, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think it makes a lot. I think it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'll admit we have a word we say on here a lot because I don't know how to pronounce it. A little jargani, right? You got some jargon going on, but jargani, jargani. Margarita. When you explain Buongiorno. it the way you do, when you say it's it's hard because. If, if I walked into, you know, like I think about my parents, my parents would be a normal client. If I walked into their house and started talking about any of this shit, they'd be like, what the, 
what are you saying right yeah. now? Like, how do I, how do I now go home to my mom and explain to her to have a little bit more chaos or control with her dog, right? Like, like, how do we boil this down simply? And do you feel, I'll ask you guys, do you feel like your typical client is having more problem with being chaotic or being too controlling? You know, because again, when I look at social media, I feel like the social media world and then the real world is sometimes so different because, and maybe it's just my location and I'm not shitting on my clients because I love my clients, but it is rare that I walk into a house and I'm like, you know what? There's just way too much control going on over here and too much obedience and you guys using the crate too much and there's too many leashes and commands. And like, like usually I go there and it's like the dog is jumping from the couch to the countertops and it's like all over the place and like doesn't even know its name yet. Um, do you feel like there is a little bit of a divide in terms of like, not to bring in social media, but like what is at the forefront of social media, like the battles that are being fought and then like what you're seeing with clients in terms of this whole, because from hearing what you're saying, you are talking about control. You are talking about structure. You are talking about getting the dog to yield to you in certain respects. Um, and those are all things that, that I see on the day-to-day being demonized. And I'm seeing a lot of the opposite of like, let your dog in your bed. Don't even train your dog. Like, don't train um, at all um just agency all the time let your dog do everything it wants to um do you see this too or does it sound like i'm like in a bubble no um, you could be honest (laughs) you could be honest (laughs) well uh my my experience has been very similar where uh statistically um the odds when i walk into a client's house that there's just utter chaos um is fairly high uh, and we mm-hmm. usually need to add some some level of order into the the mixture here um and then of course much less common uh, is walking into the home where there's way too much order and i'm like you know give your dog a break um and that's where i think think there's so much variability as to what constitutes an appropriate amount of chaos or 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 order per dog um that you know it's very difficult to um have a view that applies to everything um across the board you know so like oftentimes in these these social media kind of contexts uh you're trying to appeal to uh as many cases as possible um statistically um but if you kind of zoom in on that you're going to find that it's not so clean and obvious and easy um i really want to shift the conversation in the dog training world away from reductionism and the idea that we can just boil everything down to to these simple component parts um, I really want us to begin embracing complexity, embracing nuance, um, embracing the grays. Um, and I, I have kind of a, uh, a little paradox thing that I, I talk about sometimes to kind of get people looking at how 
concepts can be uh, very non-binary. So think about, um, it's called the Sorites paradox or Sorites paradox. Um, I don't know, I don't speak Greek, but uh, the word on, means man. heap. <laughs> <laughs> so the word means heap. So um, you have a heap of sand. At what, what grain of sand made it a heap? So you have, maybe mm -hmm. you have like 10,000 grains of sand. You know, it's a heap of sand. You know, mm -hmm. we use a word to describe this thing in front of us. It's a heap of sand. Um, but if it's 10,000 grains of sand and we call it a heap and then we take away one grain, is it not a heap anymore? Mm -hmm. When we take away another grain, is it still not a heap or is it still a heap? At what grain did it become not a heap? Now, naturally, you'd say one grain of sand is not a heap. So if you have one grain of sand in front of you, you'd like that's not a heap of sand. Um, so where was the transition point from heap to non-heap? Um, and it's impossible to, to pin down. Um, and that's where a, a word like heap is vague um, and ambiguous and kind of context dependent. So like the um, a lot of the problems that we run into is the fact that reality is very difficult to apply language to. Um, especially uh, when there's so many things going on and there's mm. so much complexity. You know, it's it's common and it, it makes things easier to reduce and, and simplify them. Um, you know, this reminds not gonna look me at of a like this mm. reminds me of like the um just a lot of the things that are always thrown out there on social media where you know the science says this the science says that and it's kind of funny because as you're saying this like i'm just thinking in my head about how whenever i hear that i always think about like those little detailed things what like kind of to what your point is and I think there's so many little things that you have to take into account sometimes. And I think that those studies sometimes are going to miss that stuff, but we're assuming that, oh, well, it's right. It, it, it says this, so it must be correct. You know, mm -hmm. whereas we're talking about maybe a laboratory setting versus the client's home, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would say that the only people conducting investigation into dog behavior at the complexity of reality is dog behavior consultants. Um, you know, uh, the point of a, a research study is to reduce um, generally mm -hmm. uh, and simplify. Um, but reality is is very complex, um, too complex to to fit in one research paper, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, so we kind of like dance between simplification of reality and reality itself. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, it's, I just find that interesting because really when I guess when you really peel it back, like there's so many, there's so many additional. It makes me at least for me how my head works like it just like makes me sit there and say, oh, well, there's a lot of other questions then that need to be asked if we're saying, oh, well, this says this, you know, study shows this and, you know, this is how we should be doing things when the reality is there might be a million other things or variables involved that actually Absolutely. may not make that 100% accurate. 
This is making me very optimistic because I believe that there are computer robots that are scanning all of our Instagram posts and videos, and they're coming up with AI dog trainers. And I was worried I was going to have to get a new job in a few years. So <laughs> this might, uh, so that's so funny. This might like, keep it doesn't, us like clear. AI never, <laughs> AI never crosses my mind. Like people bring Dude, it up. All AI needs like... to be crossing your mind now. Otherwise it's going to be crossing you. So get ready. <laughs> that's fine um anthony i could move to the country finally and just like be away from all computers and and everything else then um, oh yeah um so to like the point of uh the sort of like linearization or simplification of things um there's this uh problem called the n body problem which is the fact that we have all the uh calculations and theorems and stuff for gravity you know all the the equations for gravity um and despite the fact that we have all these uh equations for gravity we cannot predict the long-term behavior of any celestial body with more than three planets or bodies in it because of the butterfly effect and the fact that uh the tiniest measurement error will eventually cascade down um, into unpredictability. So um, I kind of look at a, a lot of dog behavior in the same way, or like um, how people learn about dog behavior. Or like operant conditioning, classical conditioning. That's like your your theory of gravity for dog behavior. You know, it's there. It, you know, it makes sense. All that stuff, but the predictive value isn't you know we can't use those theories to create predictive value if we could we wouldn't have any behavioral issues we wouldn't have any chaos or nonlinearity. so just like how we have all the formulas for gravity and we cannot predict the stability of the solar system um, we have all these cool conditioning theories but it doesn't get us any closer to being able to forecast behavior in the way that we would need to, or the way that um, the simplification of behavior would make you think you could. So when you're looking at most cases, or for someone that's listening, let's assume that they have a ton of chaos. And let's also assume that, I know you said you deal specifically with difficult cases, but say it's just the general, you know, dog is wild, doesn't listen, no aggression, maybe. Where where are you implementing the baseline order? Like, is there, is there, I know we just got through saying, like, there is no blueprint and there is no cookie cutter, <laughs> but if you were just So going what's my for, blueprint? <laughs> yeah, no, not your blueprint, but like, is there a place you kind of find that you're starting most often aside from very specific cases? Um, yeah. Where like that would yeah. matter. Um, most of the time um, I am starting at the smallest versions of conflict that I can identify. So mm -hmm. like, even if a case has no aggression in it or no major behavioral issues, that doesn't mean that's always going to be the case. I might be seeing the um, the microscopic versions of what could be a problem in like two or three years. It's not always going to be a problem, but it could be. So if I'm spotting um, conflict at like a one out of 10 scale, 
I might be able to predict that if I don't address this, it could reach 10 out of 10 eventually or not, but I'd rather be safer than sorry. Um, so I'm looking for areas of conflict, you know, between dogs or between the dog and the owner or the dog and their environment where uh, small amounts of conflict may be occurring. And I want to make sure that they don't uh, ramp up or, or grow exponentially. So I'm usually kind of starting off with um, areas that the dog is using pressure on others and getting some kind of beneficial outcome. Um, so that's kind of where I start, and that so so to kind of boil it down again to like a to like a I'm trying to think of like a typical client. So client gets a puppy, 12 weeks old. It's they put it away in a confinement area. It whines. Would you consider that whining pressure? And would you consider them ignoring the whining and getting the dog to settle down in the crate as giving into the pressure and not learning that their whining pressure gets them out in attention? Um, so for that, uh, like whining is sort of like the extension of social pressure. I think it would depend on the dog because some of them are, are just whining because they're they're whining. Not some like, of them are, are whining like with like the goal directed. I know we're I know we're coming up with like a a fake scenario but assuming this dog does not have separation anxiety it's not it, it's not showing any of the you know biological symptoms of like a crazy amount of stress it's just kind of like get me out of here if it were to talk i know we can't talk for them but um say it yeah. say the owner um, reports to you that after 10 minutes it settles down and goes to sleep um, but then in the future, uh, maybe tries to, you know, the next day, is that like an example of, of that, or like the smallest um, level? Yeah. So for that, I'm, I'm kind of looking at like, does the dog escalate or do they deescalate? Yeah, exactly. Um, and like, naturally, you know, something like, you know, being in the crate, you know, a dog is barking in the crate or something, I would want time coming out of the crate for a, mm -hmm. a de-escalation period rather than an escalation period, because um, the dog could learn in concept to escalate. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of um, where I like to start, you know, like, yeah, let's say we have a puppy. Um, I'd say one of the first things we should be teaching that puppy is don't jump on people, don't put pressure on people, um, don't steal resources uh and that's pretty much where i like to start and when they're doing those things you're just you're redirecting them or you're you're putting some type of a pressure on them also like are you conditioning them to small levels of pressure at that age um so it kind of depends um so like some dogs if you kind of like ignore the behavior um it'll go away mm-hmm uh, and some dogs, if you ignore the behavior, they'll escalate. Mm -hmm. um, so if like escalation seems to be on the table for a specific dog, I can't ignore the behavior because the dog is just mm -hmm. going to, you know, for example, like barking for attention. You know, there's some dogs, there's no amount of ignoring that's going to work. It's just going to keep barking. Um, so I tend to try to like, rather than um, respond aversively, I generally try to like mistranslate the dog, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, for example, like my dog barking at me when she was a puppy to like make her food faster. I think um I think Sarah Streming had, I, I think I got this concept from her when I was listening to her podcast. Um, but you know, dogs barking for food, and then uh, I mistranslate that as like, oh, did you want some pets? You know, so I go to to pet the dog, but that's not what the dog's goal was. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm always kind of like keeping the dog's goal state in mind and leveraging that.
So proximity mm. to your goal is what I'm playing with. And if the behavior is is problematic, I'll make it, the behavior will cause the proximity to the goal to increase. And the behavior we like, you know, will cause the proximity to the goal to decrease. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, Chad Mackin, I was talking to him once and he described it as a intentional misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the dog does a thing for a thing and you <laughs> provide them with another thing that the, exactly. like not nothing. It doesn't have to be aversive, but just something different. And the dog goes, Oh shit. Like, that's, not, that's not what yeah. I expected like, you to do, but like, like it, th- it throws them off. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause like all this, all behavior is communication. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they're, if we know kind of what they're communicating, but we don't like the, the way that they're saying it, we can be like, Hey, that doesn't translate well to English. You know, like that behavior just didn't translate. It gets lost in translation. Um, and the dog learns, uh, the, the pattern of behavior there or like the, uh, the outcome of their communication is being misunderstood, um, intentionally in that case, of course. And then that's where also we need to be careful because similar to what we were talking about with linguistics, with our actions is, you know, every week I get at least one or two cases where the dog is jumping on the owner and the owner is yelling at the dog and sometimes even physically shoving or pushing the dog, but the dog perceives that as rewarding. The dog loves that. The dog likes to be pushed. The dog likes to be shoved. Yeah. So the <laughs> owner thinks like, well, I'm shoving it, I'm pushing it, I'm punishing it. But like, nope, that's not that's not how it's being perceived. Yeah, and that's where um perception is the the missing piece in like the the behavior stimulus uh, mm-hmm. formula per se. Where like um if you're not if you're just looking at stimulus uh, and consequence um you forget to think about perspective and perspective is where uh all of that can go out the window where like your your linear assumption of uh stimulus consequence is oh i push the dog that should punish it so it shouldn't mm-hmm. jump anymore um but if you fail to take in uh, perception into account and the dog's perception of events you know you could wind up making this mess where the dog's like oh boy i love wrestling with dad and uh dad is like i'm not having a good time <laughs> yeah and and then that ties into what we were talking about before with the use of aversives or tools and what we think they might be doing you know we've all seen the dog that pulls harder with the prong collar on because it's almost turned into this it turns up the intensity it has you know paired that feeling with pulling and then it actually agitates the dog and then gets the dog to do more of a thing where we might think like oh we're punishing it like no you're ramping that dog you're ramping that dog up even more even though you think that this tool is only going to be able to punish that's not always the case yeah dogs pull because they resist tension from the leash and forward movement occurs Mm -hmm. that's going to happen no matter what the dog's wearing yeah is anthony going to sleep over there just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Are you guys getting sleepy on me? We're only hour. We're only an hour two of ten. <laughs> <laughs> I love this man. I don't want to keep you guys up. I'll I'll sit here all night because I'm a nerd. <laughs> but 
I love this. I, I really I, appreciate it. Everything a great so conversation. I love it. Yeah, this is great. I couldn't hear what? you guys. I'm you guys want to add? Oh, we're talking about. We're just planning out the next hour of the podcast tonight. We're gonna see oh, okay. We're, we're trying to organize <laughs> where we're going. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I have mean... um, I have high hopes for the uh, dog training community we can kind of escape all this reductionism. I have high hopes for the dog training community too. I think in general, when I look around, I feel like it's trending in a positive direction. I hope, I feel like talking to new clients and over the years, talking to a new client now versus talking to a new client 10 years ago, what they know about dog training, the, the day I step in the door i feel like even that is evolving and i mean people that haven't had other trainers like not someone that came from other trainers like i feel like just like what's in the collective conscious of what dog training is is going in a good direction i feel um how would you apply this concept of chaos to us to the trainers to what you might see yeah. going on 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 Facebook uh, or Instagram or just yeah. So so what you just uh said that um you know the sort of collective knowledge um that is something that exists sort of outside of us. Um mm -hmm. there's sort of like this uh collective computation that occurs when couple trainers hundreds of trainers thousands of trainers are, are putting their anecdotal experiences out into the world and it's kind of like creating this body of knowledge that is its own entity that um people can draw from you know including clients that are, are going onto the internet um and that that collective computation um uh data ohm is uh like this web of of information that we're all just kind of like adding to um and that's where um the the chaos of everything is you know depending on where in that sort of uh network of information you're looking based on your own experiences your own biases stuff like that um you might be only looking at like a section of this whole uh data orb um, that kind of exists out there in space for us to look at. Um, but it's huge and it's growing by the day. Um, and it's a lot more complex than we think it is. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. And then within that orb, because there will be outliers, is that the edge of, I forget, you were in the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about like the edge of chaos, like, we take it to the edge and then we kind of look for order again. So mm -hmm. does there yes. almost have um, to be examples of chaos every once in a while? Like, it's almost like we need to know what the, like, is it like we need to know what the outer limit is? Like, is that, is that kind of what that is? I feel like that even goes on like through time and the culture of just countries and. Absolutely. Um, it just kind of like oscillates around these uh, these uh, gravitational forces uh, beyond our comprehension. Um, 
yeah in terms of like the the culture of things it's it's going to sort of oscillate between um you know very ordered and structured and then very disordered and chaotic um and i would say that like the the oscillation occurring in the the dog training community now might be sort of um uh, a push away from order and control um but there's also sort of that other extreme so like uh let's say you know 10 15 years ago the 20 30 etc whatever time frame you're looking at you know things may have been a lot more like order centric you know obedience 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 you know dominance alpha nonsense um and then today we kind of have this pendulum swift shift all the way to the other end of you know let dogs do anything they want ever <laughs> um and kind of like as a community we'll kind of like oscillate between uh order and disorder and hopefully uh narrow in on something that is better than either extreme or then it's interesting because you can look at it from either direction because then or is it that we're in the chaotic now in terms of the dogs where we're letting them do more in agency and that or is it that there's more order in terms of like following the science strictly or following the studies strictly or only doing things that are like backed by like organization strictly versus like adding nuance in there um so it's almost interesting it's like how do you know if you're under chaos or control <laughs> no. um, so that's it that's the, that's the episode guys you don't even know if you're chaotic <laughs> under control anthony's like i'm it's, sorry we're um... gonna have to put a tinfoil hat on for the last 30 minutes of this podcast because <laughs> i want to even start talking about like the out like and then it's like i wonder at what like to what extent do like algorithms play into this and and social media algorithms where if it's almost like the algorithms are looking for control, which is like the opposite of chaos. And then you are losing that gray area nuance because, and even if you want to look at the two splits of the camps, could it, again, this is where you're, you, th you thrive on this theory. So I'm almost wondering if like the edges are the control and the chaos is more the middle, meaning like, the two sides of the spectrum that find themselves very extreme are actually more controlled does that make sense like within their own camp and then people that are kind of in the middle and feeling lost like i don't fit like you said before you don't fit the labels so i feel like fitting labels would be more controlled wouldn't it regardless of whether you're you know i'm i'm force free this or I'm balanced this it's like you're still looking for some type of uh order versus like I don't have a label does that make sense or am I like yeah. completely lost no, you're, you're making this? sense <laughs> um that that I think more has to do with our, our mental models and kind of how we perceive the world um and that's where uh like the like a theoretical extreme chaotic and a theoretical extreme uh order just doesn't really exist um you know and it's always going to be somewhere in the middle it's just kind of more or less you know along mm. that gradient um but your your mental model of how you perceive the world around you 
um, generally we like predictability and patterns and you know being able to assign words to the things that we see and there's there's elements of, of order and control in that of course um, but there's also elements of disorder sort of in the sense of you can't capture all of that in like one word or like one camp you know we're like uh, we might be seeking to um, add some order into things uh, some some order into how we're describing or viewing the world um, but there's going to be disorder too kind of along for the ride um, and that's where like we're kind of like surfing in between I like that surfing Anthony, you surfing or sleeping? <laughs> I'm ready to go to sleep, my friends. <laughs> I love it. I love We're it. We're just getting started. We're just warming up. Well, part two could be in the <laughs> afternoon. Um, I know Vinny wakes up at like 10 a.m., but I'm up at five. So do it when I'm actually here. Here we go. Here we go. We'll stand. All right. <laughs> I got a new mask now. I got a I got a sleep mask, so like I don't even wake up from the sun. It's been great. Oh god, it's been pretty good. It's Brian, this has time. been awesome. Thank I you. I would Brian. continue so going on until I don't even know what. This is great. This is this is interesting. Um, I mean, I feel like we had to get a little chaotic today, right? If you're still listening to this, I apologize. Par for the course. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm assuming if anyone's listening now, they they love it, and if they didn't <laughs> like it, they shut it off a long time ago. So, before um, we forget, uh, before we forget, where can people uh, where can people find you at? Just so we make sure you get get your little plug in. Absolutely. Um, so you can find me pretty much mostly on Facebook uh, as Brian Fleming. Um, B-R-I-N-F-L-E-M-I-N-G. You can also find my blog, uh, chaosandcanines.substack.com. Um, and as well, look out for the Canine Complexity Podcast with uh, Kat Harbord and myself. Sounds good. Well, Thank thanks you. again for coming on. This is awesome. Absolutely. This is a lot of fun. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.